This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Item number one, Larry Inman returns. The embattled state representative Larry Inman, Republican of Traverse City, returned to the floor of the State House of Representatives this week, took his seat for the first time in over three months, and actually voted on a bill or bills while he was there. Now, this is the Larry Inman who has been indicted by the federal government for attempted bribery and lying to the FBI. And just the week before, the State House of Representatives took a vote. We reported on it last week. And by a margin of 98 to 8, the House voted to ask Larry Inman to please resign. But Larry Inman evidently still has no intention of resigning. He has been stripped of all his office staff, locked out of his office, banished from the Republican caucus, uh, has really nothing to operate with other than his own self uh, and his seat on the floor of the State House of Representatives. And unless the House should move to expel him, and there still is no sign that they're getting ready to do that, although I suppose that could happen at any time. Uh, He is free to exercise his legal right to cast votes on behalf of his constituents, and we'll see what happens next. Item number two. Apparently, Michigan has its own version of Donald Trump. Although it takes two female state officials to do it. Attorney General Dana Nessel tweets somewhat like the president, although not as often and not with such blunt force trauma. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer issues executive orders and rules to end run the legislature somewhat like our last two presidents, Barack Obama and Mr. Trump. For example, Michigan will become the first state to ban nearly all flavors of e-cigarettes under emergency rules announced Wednesday by Governor Whitmer, a move sure to face a challenge in court. According to the Gongwa report, the Department of Health and Human Services, under orders by Governor Whitmer, will file the rules in, quote, the next few weeks, unquote. Those rules would take immediate effect, although retailers would have 30 days to sell their remaining products and last for six months. That is, the order would last for six months with the potential for one six-month extension. Now, Governor Whitmer said she took the action after the state's chief medical executive, Dr. Joni Caldoun, issued a finding that youth use of e-cigarette constitutes a public health emergency. 
The emergency rules will ban the sale of flavored nicotine vaping products in retail stores and online and prohibit what Mrs. Whitmer called, quote, misleading marketing of vaping products, unquote, such as terms like clean, safe, and healthy. Mrs. Whitmer said she also ordered the Department of Transportation to enforce existing law barring the advertising of vapor products on billboards. The only permitted flavor will be tobacco. Two of the most popular flavors up to this time in vaping products are mint and menthol. They would be banned. Menthol combustible cigarettes would remain available, however. Uh, Lynn Sutphin, who is a spokesperson for the Department of Health and Human Services, said that while rates of youth vaping are rising rapidly, that is not the case for use using smoking tobacco or combustible cigarettes. And that is why there was no finding of an emergency on menthol cigarettes. Now, the administration's action provoked, as you can imagine, a furious response from the vaping industry, which has long promoted e-cigarettes as a safer alternative to combustible tobacco products and promises of a lawsuit. Health groups, however, as you can imagine, hailed the Whitmer administration's action. Now, Some legislators, and predictably they were Republicans, criticized Whitmer's decision to ban the sale of flavored e-cigarette products without the involvement of the legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, and the public because it lacks the transparency that citizens deserve from their government. For example, freshman state Representative Matt Hall, who's a Republican from Marshall, charged that, and I'm going to quote here, the governor's decision to circumvent the democratic process by executive privilege evades any chance for legislative oversight, open hearings, and public testimony on what she described as a growing health epidemic. And Hall continued, and I'm quoting still, Considering the governor recently signed into law our legislative plan, these were bills passed by the legislature late last spring, to keep e-cigarettes out of the hands of Michigan's youth, and the governor signed those bills or bill, it is confusing for her to dodge the democratic process this time around. Our plan was debated through several legislative committees over several weeks and included testimony from industry experts and small business owners and citizens. And so Hall says, and I'm still quoting, for this reason, I strongly urge the governor to reconsider her approach and hold public hearings on these emergency administrative rules so that all communities across the state may have their voices rightfully heard, unquote. Now, let me just interject here that uh, through a declaration of emergency, uh, 
the governor is permitted to create rules that bypass a public hearing by the legislature's joint committee on administrative rules. And so on Wednesday, uh, that's when the governor ordered the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services to issue emergency rules banning the sale of flavored nicotine vaping products in retail stores and online, making Michigan the first state to issue a sales ban on such products for people of all ages. Michigan law does allow for state agencies to create regulations and policies through the administrative rules process that, once approved, have the force of law. Although the Department of Health and Human Services had yet to file the vaping ban rule when authorized, the ban will be effective immediately and it will last for six months. And Michigan businesses will be given a 30-day window to comply. I'll just say a couple of other things. Um, I think this is probably going to boost Governor Whitmer's popularity. If anybody wanted to take a poll right now on job rating or personal approval, I think her approval rating and job rating would go up uh, from the last one that was taken. Uh, So we'll see where this goes, but it's provoked a lot of uh, surprise and uh, controversy. What else is new? I will be back, and we hope to have three guests who will talk about three completely different things. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, as promised, with a brand new topic here. This one is really fascinating to me. It is about rising Great Lake water levels and its impact on a very prominent West Michigan tourist mecca, Pentwater, Michigan. And we have with us, we're very lucky to have him, Pentwater Township Supervisor Dave Spittler. Mr. Spittler, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Well, look, will you explain, uh, it's very tough, I know, for people who really don't understand uh, what Pentwater is, uh, the fact that it's a lake connected by a channel to Lake Michigan. I think the Pentwater River flows into Pentwater Lake, and then Pentwater Lake supposedly flows into Lake Michigan. But I'm wondering if maybe it isn't maybe the other way around these days. I don't know. And one bridge, which uh, connected part of the town, uh, of the village of Pentwater to another part of the village, has been underwater since last spring and has been closed. Can you explain what's going on? Well, I'll try to do that very succinctly here. Yes, uh, you're exactly right, Bill. The uh, the Long Bridge Road, which the bridge is in the, approximately the center of that, underneath the channel, which is uh, Pentwater River that flows through, as you mentioned, uh, separates the community so that uh, there is a number of people down by the channel, which would be on the northwest corner, that are part of the village but yet have to go all the way around the lake in order to get back to the village plus the fact that it does split our township in half. So uh, it, is a critical, it is a critical problem for us, uh, especially with the fact that you have um, the basically fire department and police department and 
uh, ambulances that need to get across there uh, in a fairly big hurry sometimes. Uh, we've had one fire over there, and it was a bit of a problem in terms of getting the fire department there. So it is it is a big issue for the community, for sure. Well, have you ever known this to have happened before in your memory? I know you're a young man probably, but in <laughs> In history, has this ever happened, that, that Long Bridge Road would be submerged in water and you can't get across it? Well, thank you. I appreciate the young man, but I am 73. So. <laughs> Sound younger than that to me. So, so I, have been, I have been around for a bit of time. Uh, that issue has occurred in 1986 when the Hart Dam uh, burst, uh, literally, because of the extreme rainfall that we had. And uh, it took out part of that road. So it has been done in the past. It has happened in the past, but not because of rising water. That was because of an event that basically took part of that road away, and that had to be reconstructed at that point. And the bridge had to be uh, fixed as well at at that point because there was a lot of debris that came down through from the entire Hart Lake that emptied uh, at one time. So that was was the biggest issue as far as that part's concerned. But uh, this, this... extreme high record water problem now is is obviously causing this problem because it soaks the bottom of the road and the bottom of the road becomes immersed in water if you will because of that and to the uh, northeast side of that portion of the road that's underwater is a marsh and it's always been a marsh so it's always been wet it's been a wetland in a marsh And unfortunately, at this point in time, the marsh wants to take over the road. And uh, it's kind of uh, doing that (laughs) at this point. Yeah, well, when when exactly did you have to close the road? Was it sometime late in the spring? May 1st. May 1st. And do do you see any time soon that, you know, the water level might recede or something is going to be done to reopen the road? Is this going to happen? Oh, yes. Absolutely. But when? Uh, Mark Timmer from the Oceana County Road Commission has said in publicly that as soon as the water level recedes beyond or down uh, past the surface of the road, that he's going to be opening that up, with the exception of uh, vehicles that are extremely heavy, like dump trucks and so forth. So they'll put a a load limit on that. And uh, when uh, I last looked at it, the water was receding. For I think we lost about six inches of, of water level, and that's encouraging because we won't have the kayaks going across the road like we had in July, I'm hoping, here very, very soon. So, yes, I think there will be at least a temporary fix uh, fairly soon uh, and allow vehicles, uh, cars, and light trucks to uh, utilize that road again. You think by October or November? Oh, I'm hoping. I'm hoping sooner than that. But, but that's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do a non-rain dance here. <laughs> we, we, well, we don't need a lot more water. Well, you said temporary. Yeah, you said temporary just a minute ago. I mean, is are there any plans for the road commission or anybody else to do anything with that bridge road so that if the water level comes back up, let's say next spring, this won't just happen all over again? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good point. And uh, basically, the, uh, the engineering companies have have done a lot of of. Uh, soil borings and that type of thing to determine exactly the depth of the problem and what's underneath there. It's a bit like creating an MRI of, of what's under the under the road surface so that they will create, they have created a three-dimensional um, 
basically view of, of what's there. And then at that point in time, they will be able to, uh, this company is called Soils and Structures, and they will be able to uh, give us, uh, give us, give the Road Commission some guidance in terms of what can be done, both short-term and long-term, to fix the problem. How much higher is the water this summer on Lake Michigan and in Pentwater Lake than it has been normally? Well, it's record record levels. Uh, basically, by the end of July, it was uh, pretty much record levels uh, as far as what we've seen anyway. Well, like two feet higher? Oh, well, more than that. Two feet, three inches, two feet, six inches at least. Wow. And another oh. thing that's happened, isn't it? Uh, this is really incredible uh, to help people on the other part of uh, Pentwater Village and Pentwater Township on the opposite side of the channel into Lake Michigan. Hasn't the village... Uh, commissioned a, a boat, a little uh, ferry, uh, to take people across the lake, like a five or ten minute jaunt from one side of the village to the other, because that's the only way they can really get straight across without driving something like eight miles all the way around Pentwater Lake and Pentwater River Bridge uh, to the northwest or wh- whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. I live over there, and it takes me, it's about 10-mile drive for uh, me to get from my house to the office. And if you live further, it's more like a 12-mile drive one way. So it's a 20 to 24-mile round trip, basically, between town and out there. So, yeah, the the water taxi is uh, quite a unique uh, situation in that the uh, village actually had been talking about something like that for some time. And this was a perfect opportunity for them to try that. And it's been fairly successful. There's three pick-off or pick-up and drop-off points uh, around the lake, and uh, it's run on a continual basis. There's a captain. His name is Lee Price, and Lee does a great job. He is a certified captain and so forth. And the village took the lead on that, and uh, basically Chris Brown, the village manager, did a great job of getting the boat uh purchased and also then retrofitting it or fitting it with what needed to be done to be Coast Guard approved and approved by all of the agencies and so forth. And it's been very successful. And then the uh, actually one of the most successful parts of that has been that they do a history tour around the lake at oh. four afternoon that is fantastic listen i would love to keep talking with you about this and in fact i'd love to get you back on again at some point in the future to find out what is going on if the bridge has been restored and we can take it from there but thank you so much dave spittler pentwater township supervisor over on lake michigan thank you This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with still another topic, and this is a really big one. But we are very fortunate to have on the other line with us Dan Hurley, who is the Chief Executive Officer, the CEO of the Michigan Association of Public Universities. Dan Hurley, thanks for being with The Political Insider. Glad to be with you today, Bill. Well, look, I want to ask you about the status of funding for higher education in Michigan. Michigan's 15 public colleges and universities. uh, Funding has plummeted uh, in the last four decades uh, from the state to Michigan's 15 public colleges and universities. I remember back in the day, I think the state used to 
provide something like two-thirds, maybe more, of the budgets of higher education in Michigan. Now it's down to a quarter or a third. You can straighten us out on this. And the prospects right now are even more perilous because of all this demand for fix the damn roads and making sure K-12 public education is properly funded. Well, what about higher education? So I ask you, Dan Hurley. Well, you ask a a really uh, good question, and you make a really good point. Uh, We do need to uh, invest in our infrastructure. Uh, I think every higher ed leader would agree with that. Uh, You need to have good infrastructure, safe roads, uh, but we also need to have a good state talent infrastructure. Uh, That drives, ultimately, that drives economic prosperity for the state, uh, for communities, for individuals that uh, uh, enter uh, post-secondary education. So you're right. uh, Back in the mid-'80s, it was about 75% of the revenues uh, provided uh, to uh, the state universities came from uh, state government with about 25% uh, through student tuition. And today it's down to... Uh, uh, remarkable 22% wow. of, of the funds uh, that operate our universities come uh, from the state and, and the incredible cost shift to students and families making up the other 78%. And, Bill, just to put it in context, nationally, if you add up all 50 states, look at all the revenues that go to public universities and community colleges, uh, that ratio is about 52% coming from the state, 48% uh, from student tuition, and it shows you just how out of balance Michigan is with respect to prioritizing investment in higher education. Now, where do we rank right now, do you know, out of the 50 states in terms of state support for our public colleges and universities? Yeah, there's various metrics. Uh, um, I actually just had... uh, um, published a, uh, or had published a commentary uh, in Cranes, Detroit, uh, this week and um, in some other publications speaking to the fact that we're 44th in the nation with regard to per-resident support, per-capita support for higher education. Uh, and that wasn't always the case. We were a top-20 state a mere 20 years ago, um, but there's just been a, a gradual decline in investment. We're more than a billion dollars off where we were Back in 2002, if we had just maintained inflationary increases uh, from that point forward, Um, but that just simply hasn't been the case. Why has this happened? I mean, how could the state allow this to happen? It's incredible. You know, it it is a matter of state priority, uh, and I I will say, Bill, when we, you know, ask uh, in the most unbiased way we can, we do a polling and ask Michigan residents, do you support greater investment? in uh, um, higher education, both in terms of operating support for the universities and and also in in terms of state financial aid, it's always a resounding yes. Uh, The public gets uh, the return on investment of helping to subsidize uh, individuals' college education. Uh, um, It benefits the individuals. They make more. Their uh, increased uh, earnings go back to the state and local uh, municipalities in terms of taxes, so they get it. But our elected representatives uh, over the years simply are not following, um, you know, the desired uh, uh, investment of uh, their their voters, and so it is out of sync. Um, you know, maybe uh, two to four, or I'd say four to four years now and beyond. Uh, you know, there might be a, a different composition um, 
possibly in the legislature from redistricting. That may uh, lead to different outcomes. Uh, who knows? But um, one thing that does frustrate me is, you know, it would seem that uh, working on behalf of, of higher education in Michigan, it would be a, I mean, certainly a, I love the opportunity, love the job, great institutions, but the data um, that we have at our disposal is so overwhelmingly positive in terms of the ROI, the return on investment, to the state. You know, the huge correlation between a state's educational attainment levels and its overall wealth. And, and that's part of the reason why uh, Governor Whitmer put forth an attainment goal. It makes sense to do that, to boost uh, educational attainment. Um, uh, so the, we have all the data. We have the facts. Um, you know, I, we don't think there's any greater investment a state can make than in its own people, um, both at the K-12 level uh, and at the post-secondary level. So, hey, let, let me just interject here. It seems to me that, you know, if, if the state is not going to support public higher education to the extent it should, there are only several things that universities and colleges can do. They can either raise tuition, and of course that's a big issue, but they can also raise money privately. And, of course, fundraising has become of necessity, such a huge part of a public university and college's overall agenda. Sometimes I think all the president really has to do is get out there and rattle the tin cup and raise money. I mean, he or she doesn't really have the capability of focusing on much else. He's just got to make sure the money's coming in. How about the federal government? Is there yeah. evidence the federal government is upping support to make up for the lack of state funding? What's going on? Uh, no, I mean, the, the federal government, uh, they play a huge role in, in federal financial aid through several programs. It's certainly the, the major one, the Pell Grant, and so uh, that's key. And then certainly they provide uh, a lot of research monies, and that certainly helps fund uh, some of our great uh, global public research universities. Um, you make a good point. Uh, this isn't just a unique phenomenon here in, in Michigan, um, but certainly, you know, 30 years ago, uh, college presidents were very much involved with, you know, uh, on the campus a lot more and, and involved in the academic side of the enterprise. And now, um, for better or for worse, they have had to uh, work externally and raise uh, private dollars. One thing I would, I would share with you, Bill, I think you probably know this, but, you know, from time to time, uh, lawmakers or others will say, well, why not, you know, tap the endowments, use their endowments? And, and I will say there certainly are some universities in the state that have some large endowments, but across the board, across universities, those endowments are um, the way you can spend those dollars. are very strictly defined by the people that actually provide those dollars. Um, so it's not like they can be used to pay, um, you know, for employee benefits or uh, the electricity bill, et cetera, et cetera. They're defined for specific things. Typically, student financial aid would be a common element. Have the colleges and universities, in your opinion, done a good job of trying to keep tuition down in the face of these terrible financial challenges? I believe they have. Um, one thing, it, it's uh, an observation that I made before is I think, um, broadly speaking, you know, at, at the uh, K-12 level, they, they you know they'll often talk much more openly, transparently, uh, transparently about uh, the cuts that have to be made and have been made. And I think um, I don't think I know. You know, the, the 15 public universities of Michigan are very high quality institutions. Uh, their reputation, their outcomes, their metrics are known 
uh, around the, the the nation, around the globe, and they're proud of that quality. And so um, they they you know uh, try to um, you know maintain that visibility, that reputation, and not speak to the cuts that are have taken place. And there has been over the the years hundreds of millions of dollars of cuts, of reallocations, of efficiencies. Uh, even though we have 15 um, autonomous public universities, there is uh, remarkable uh, collaboration that is taking place on big price items, uh, insurance, healthcare, etc. So those efficiencies are being made, but nevertheless, because of that status investment, uh, tuition prices uh, have crept up a bit. Dan Hurley, CEO of the Michigan Association of Public Universities. I think it used to be the President's Council, right? Yep. Okay, well, new, new name. Yeah, new name, uh, new sheriff in town with a big, tough job. Dan Hurley did a great job explaining a situation, and I hope it works out. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Representative John Riley. He is a Republican from Oakland Township, uh, 46th House District. I believe that is five townships in northeastern Oakland County, including Oxford and Orion. Is that correct, Representative Riley? That is. You're absolutely correct about that. Okay, listen, uh, you had a really uh, interesting bill. Um, You still have it. In fact, it got reported out of a committee, I believe, last week in the State House of Representatives. Can you explain what that bill is? Sure. Uh, This bill has to do with the ability for students to have uh, free speech on uh, public universities. And uh, the reason that uh, we came up with this bill is because we have seen a consistent – uh, uh, on college campuses, we've seen consistently where the colleges are not allowing or even promoting free speech, uh, and they do this through a variety of different ways and different policies, uh, such as there's only certain places on campus where you can have free speech. You have to get a permit to uh, to actually uh, give out constitutions or or to be or to get your viewpoint out there which and this bill doesn't say you can go anywhere on the campus and do it obviously the, the bill is designed to set policy so that the uh, campus can still operate but with an overview that the campus uh, the the school is going to promote free speech and uh, not try to obstruct it and this is what we're really missing and if you think about it in today's culture uh, that the inability for people to even feel comfortable talking about sensitive subjects. I mean, I know there are things that people do not want to hear other people say, uh, but still, uh, in a free society, we should have the ability to uh, to openly view things as long as it's not endangering the safety of other individuals. We should be able to give a, a, our point of view. Uh, if we are somebody who thinks that, that the uh, Catholic Church is not doing the right thing and they want to speak out against that, uh, they should have the ability to do that without being censored or without being told you can only do this by a permit in this certain location. So we're doing this after seeing that multiple times uh, schools, and they consistently lose these cases when people are suing them because not getting the free speech guaranteed by the First Amendment. And so then in the public universities, it's the actual it's the uh, taxpayer that ends up indirectly paying for 
uh, this because they keep on losing. They, the schools are almost always losing these battles, and then there's financial settlements for them. Uh, this affects only public colleges and universities. I mean, your bill, I mean, in other words, you don't have uh, the power to regulate free speech on, let's say, a private college campus like Alma or Albion or, you know, Adrian or Hope or Calvin. That's correct. Yeah, these, yeah. these we're talking about public universities. And by the way, which uh, uh, the, the state uh, gives significant amount of dollars to. So taxpayers are uh, helping fund these universities. And so as uh, we have an interest in this as, a, as uh, watchdogs with the taxpayers' dollars, uh, what's going on here? We don't want to see the taxpayers' dollars going, getting spent because uh, universities are not allowing free speech because uh, on these settlement cases. What is the procedure usually when an outside group or an individual speaker wants to speak on some subject on a college campus? Does he or she have to go through the university administration to get approval uh, to be allowed to speak? Or could somebody just show up, let's say, in front of Cowell's house at Michigan State University on the lawn and just get on a soapbox and start talking and be in violation of what the university considers to be legitimate free speech? What? Well, well yeah, obviously all the every school has different policies, but, yeah, that's exactly the case, which you mentioned, that uh, you would not be able to do that. You would not be able to go in an open area which where there's people congregating, get on your soapbox and speak without first getting a permit possibly in some cases and then and that's actually they would possibly say oh that's only in this certain area that you're quarantined to the certain area you cannot do it and these other where my bill basically says no in public areas in the uh, university that's open space for you can have free speech uh, obviously you you can't be doing this in a classroom or where you're disrupting the normal uh, uh, activity that's going on within the school where you're infringing on other people's rights, uh, for example, a student to partake in a class because of the disruption of you, you're standing on a soapbox in the middle of his class. But uh, in, in the open areas, uh, yeah, that's free game to uh, anybody who wants to talk about whatever issues they want to talk about. Is there some evidence that there is bias being shown by some universities and colleges in terms of who they allow to get up and speak or a group to get up and speak, uh, maybe saying, okay, your group looks okay to us, we'll let you do it, and then some other group, uh, which may be maybe politically incorrect, so to speak, uh, the administration says, no, we don't think so. You can't come here. Is there some evidence of that? Well, I haven't gone through and, and done a study on that, but I would say that there's definitely been cases of people when they've had conservative speakers have made uh, – They've uh, either said they're going to have to have all this. Uh, I, maybe I shouldn't even say conservative, but maybe people that where the students don't even want to hear this viewpoint, or they're so and you and so then they may say, well, we're going to have to have additional police come in to cover the safety of this, and then it's like over the top, and they they really are really through that by charging and saying you have to have this additional protection. They're really. Uh, eliminating the possibility for those uh, speakers to come in. I mean, there was one case where the Constitution, there was a group uh, at Kellogg Community College where they were trying to hand out Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So is that a, uh, I guess that'd be neutral uh, left-right politically, but uh, uh, that is a situation where they were they were uh, basically not allowed to do that. And uh, But I would say that uh, there's definitely a trend out there. Uh, people have talked about it, that they, they've, 
there's been some one-sidedness on the political spectrum as far as uh, the ability to hear conservative speakers or people or messages that people don't necessarily want to hear. Yeah, some people have described your bill as an effort to ban what is called the heckler's veto, and that is, you know, maybe the university initially says to a group, okay, you can come in and talk, and then a group of students who don't like what they believe the speaker is likely to say will create such an uproar that the university backs down and says, well, no, we're going to need too much security to assure public safety, and so, you know, we're going to cancel this event. Uh, Is that kind of what's going on also in some of these instances? I I believe that is, or when when people... Come in, and and then the other side. Uh, there's a they're they're not allowed to allow the speaker to speak. So there's so much commotion, so much yelling, that the speaker who's come in, people can't even hear them. And so there, and that uh, obviously is so silly to think about this. That we have a campus where you've had a guest that's come in to speak on a topic that may be very controversial. Uh, instead of letting this individual be heard, people are are yelling and chanting and uh, not letting this uh, speech come out. And that's so, they, yeah, that, that is yeah. definitely happening. Well, one last question I've got, and that is the, the language in Michigan's Constitution, which, as you probably know, is very strong and says uh, that colleges and universities have autonomy in Michigan to run their own show uh, with no intrusion uh, permissible from state government on telling them how to run things. Is that a problem with your bill that it could be challenged in court uh, by, let's say, the American Civil Liberties Union or somebody else saying, uh, you know, the state under the language of the Michigan Constitution has no right to tell universities how they have to uh, police public speaking. The universities have total autonomy to be able to do that. What do you think? Well, I'd say bring on that battle if that's what they want to do, because what we're talking about here is First Amendment rights. And uh, if that if they people want to uh, take that to court, they're always uh, offered that ability to do that. But uh, when you think about how important your First Amendment rights are, which we hold in high regard, especially at a public university, especially when we see what's going on in our world today, where people uh, are, do not have the ability to have civil discourse uh, over so many issues, because why? Many people have gone through the college system and they haven't experienced this because of these kinds of policies that have what kept people from having free speech. So I would say, yeah, bring it on. Let's bring on those lawsuits and let's see what happens, because I, th- I feel very confident that the free speech will win out and that uh, and that uh, people will recognize the importance of free speech. Yeah, your bill has been reported out of what committee now in the House? It's reported out of the Oversight Committee, and it'll go to the uh, Judiciary Committee now from here. So if it gets through that, then it goes out to the House floor, and it'd be voted on on the House floor, and then it would go over to the Senate, right? That's that's right. I think we have, we're going to have uh, support on both sides from this, if it gets to the House floor. I think we're, and, and even the next committee, I think that the uh, we're going to see uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, come together on this because... Both groups of people uh, obviously believe uh, very highly in the ability for free speech. Listen, Representative John Riley, you've given a great explanation of your free speech bill on college campuses. Thank you so much for being on the Political Insider. Representative John Riley, Republican of Oakland Township. Thanks so much, Bill, for the opportunity to get uh, get the information out about this bill. 
That's all for this week, folks. But next week we'll have even more. 